Fast forward to the end of 2024. Think of your goals. What can you do right now to give yourself the best chance of succeeding? If you want to learn a new language, you absolutely should get Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. I absolutely love Babbel because their courses help me learn real-life conversational skills. It's so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, speak to the locals without having to consult language apps. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time offer for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners, at babbel.com SPP. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I just, I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hey, everybody out there, this is Smart People Podcast. This is Chris Stemp. And this is John Rojas. Yep, that was interesting. Today, we're going to teach you a little something about yourself. Actually, we're not going to teach you. We don't know anything. We don't teach anything. We just allow for teaching to occur. But Adam Grant, Professor Adam Grant, is going to drop some knowledge. And he's probably somebody that you want to talk to. He is the youngest tenured professor and highest rated teacher at the Wharton School, which you've probably heard of. He has been honored as one of Business Week's favorite professors and one of the world's top 40 business professors under 40. His consulting speaking clients include Google, the NFL, Goldman Sachs, Merck, United Nations, Army, Navy, Air Force. It's crazy. He's got a PhD in organizational psychology from Michigan and a BA from Harvard. So that's his credentials. It's just to let you know, this guy does his stuff right. And he also wrote a fascinating book. He did, and that's let's, what we're talking about Let's not about forget today. to mention that. So it'll give you a little idea. The book is called Give and Take, A Revolutionary Approach to Success. Basically, he's talking about how there are people that give and there are people that take. You might not have known what the name of the book, but... Well, you wouldn't know if it's people. That's what it is. So we're going to turn it over here to Adam in a second. John wanted to ask you a favor. I do, and I'm going to keep asking this week after week. Please, please head over to iTunes. Leave us a rating, a comment, a review. 
four stars, five stars. No, 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 four stars. No, just five stars. Five stars. Somebody left four stars the other day, and I appreciate it, but, you know, what's another star? Come on. <laughs> but anyways, leave those reviews for us. It really helps the show, moves us up the charts. We've been doing pretty well in the education section, but we'd like to move up to the front page of iTunes again. So if we can get all you guys to leave a review... That's going to help us out immensely. Only leave a review if you if you like it, if you appreciate the show. Aside from that, I mean, maybe we're just doing a bad job. I hope not. And this week's episode is an awesome one. I think you all agree. We're going to now just jump right in. Adam Grant and his book, Give and Take. Adam, thank you so much for being on the show. Give and Take it's an awesome book, and like I mentioned a few minutes ago when we were talking, I've been doing my research, watched some videos, and read some more things, and truly, I find what you do intriguing because you obviously do it for a living, and I don't know much about it, but it's, I feel like it's debatable, you know? I, I don't know how much I, how I feel about your, your findings, well, neither do I, but I try to lead with data and evidence and then let the feelings follow as opposed to vice versa. Well, and, and I don't even want to jump in yet to my own personal things. Before we tell everybody, could you kind of let us know what you talk about in Give and Take, specifically the reciprocity styles, which I think are fantastic that you lay out? Well, this is something that really intrigued me when, when I was doing some research on success I was curious about how our interaction styles shape our performance and our promotions and even our salaries. And I found this overwhelming evidence that across cultures, across industries, there are these three fundamental styles that the people bring to their interactions with others. So on one end of the reciprocity spectrum, we have the takers who are constantly trying to get as much as they can from other people and not give anything back unless they absolutely have to. And on the other end, we have these people that I call givers. And I'm not necessarily talking about philanthropists or even volunteers, but rather the kinds of people who enjoy helping others and frequently do it without any strings attached, whether they're making introductions or stepping up as a mentor or maybe just helping some colleagues solve problems or sharing some knowledge. What I find is very few of us are purely givers or takers in our work interactions. Most of us fall right in the middle of that spectrum as matchers. And if you're a matcher, you try to keep an even balance of give and take, quid pro quo. If I'm a matcher and, and I do you a favor, I expect an equal one in return. And if you do me a favor, I feel like I'm in debt until I've settled the score. I find all those really interesting, especially because I recent. have you ever read the book, Psych The Psychopath Test? Yes, I have. And that is the one, I feel like it is the, it's like the antithesis of what you write about. I don't, you know what I mean? Sort of. Well, you know, I think the implication of that book would be that, you know, being a, an extreme taker, right, which is what only psychopaths can achieve, right. is the path to the top. Right. And I would put a couple of caveats on that. The first one is that some psychopaths may succeed in spite of that behavior rather than because of it. Second one is that you will find, I think, more extreme takers at the top. Because, you know, in some cases, being a taker is really efficient. You know, if you're in a very independent job where you're measured only by your own individual results, it could be seen as, as a sensible strategy to just say, look, I'm going to put myself first. Now, most of the world doesn't work that way, which we'll talk about. And then, you know, I think the, the third reason that you might see this is as people gain power, you get to see more of their true colors. 
There's a lot of research showing that as we climb up the hierarchy, we feel freer to express our values and sort of act in whatever way we think is most appropriate. And I think this is an interesting reversal of what I write about in the book, because in general, most people are matchers in typical roles. But I think at the very top of organizations, you see the opposite, where you find many more takers and givers and far fewer matchers. And I think the basic reason is that matching is a strategy that people choose to play it safe. And once you're in power, you don't worry about playing it safe anymore. And so you either tend to express your self-oriented or other-oriented values. Obviously, you can put it much more eloquently than I can. That was fantastic. And so what you were saying is at the top of organizations, you have more takers than matchers. But do you have more takers than givers? That is an open question. I would love to see some good data on that because you know we, we know a lot. And part of what I do in the book is, is focus in on success metrics like how well do you do your job, productivity, sales revenue, et cetera. We have much less evidence on you know how, how quickly do you rise up the hierarchy and, and how high do you climb. But you know I would say that there are far more givers at the top of organizations than people expect. And part of the reason that, you know, that a lot of us assume that, that it's mostly takers at the top is when you look up the organization, the takers are the most visible, right? They're the ones who are hogging credit and, and claiming the spotlight in the center of attention. Whereas the givers, when they climb to the top, are pretty comfortable sharing credit and sort of maybe fading into the background a little bit because they tend to put other people's interests or the organization's mission above their own egos. And so I think because of that dynamic, we tend to us underestimate the number of givers that might be running organizations. And you basically answered my question right there, especially, you know, I was kind of kidding when I said, oh, I don't necessarily know if I agree with what you're saying. It's more so because takers have gotten this reputation, at least in my mind and in the hard charging field of business, as being the ones that make it to the top, they step on everybody. And so it seems nice, and also I hope it's true, that givers actually tend to be the ones to, to really change organizations and to do the best work. Yeah, I mean, that, that's one of the more interesting findings, I think, is there's this analysis by Nathan Podzikoff and his colleagues where they look at over 3,600 business units and they find that the more frequently employees are willing to engage in giving and helping behaviors, the better organizations tend to do in terms of profits, operating expenses, customer satisfaction, employee retention, name any outcome you care about in organizations and creating a, a culture of givers tends to facilitate it. And you look at that and you say, okay, givers are these incredible resources for organizations. But unfortunately, in a lot of settings, they, they do that at their own expense. Right? They make their organizations better, and yet they sacrifice their own success because they get exploited by takers, they end up burning themselves out, and uh, it's not very efficient or effective. But as you know, that's only half the story. Actually, I kind of know, but I know a lot of people don't. What is the other half of the story? Because I think that's a very important differentiating factor. Well, this is a big surprise for me when I looked at three different occupations that I thought captured very different ways of measure, measuring success. We had engineers and their productivity, how much work do they get done, as well as how many mistakes do they make, so both quantity and quality, looking at medical students and their grades, and then finally salespeople and their annual revenue. Across all three of those occupations, the givers tend to do worse than the takers and the matchers. And you look at that and you say, good guys finish last. If you're an engineer who, for example, did a lot more favors for other people than they did for you, 
then that was a great predictor of, of having poor productivity and a lot of errors because you were so busy helping other people, you couldn't get your own work done efficiently or effectively. And you, know, you can anticipate similar patterns in, in medicine and sales. But I was curious then, well, if givers are at the bottom, who's at the top? It wasn't the takers, but it wasn't the matchers either. The surprise for me was it was the givers again, that the best performers along with the worst performers were also the helpful and generous among us. So the engineers with the top productivity and the best work quality also did more favors than they got back. You know, the, it was the takers and the matchers who traded, you know, either in their, their own favor or evenly who had average results. And in medicine and, and sales, what you got was basically this pattern where the givers underperformed initially, but over time they actually rose and, and tended to outdo the takers and the matchers in the long run. And so, you know, I came away from, from those data really wondering, you know, could giving be as powerful as it is dangerous? You know, my next question has to be, then can it be like, is it powerful? You know, how do you turn it into a powerful thing as opposed yeah, to that, a dangerous thing? That, that was, was definitely part of what got me excited about writing give and take is, you know, to understand what makes giving less risky and more rewarding. And by the way, I really care about that because it turns out in life, most people hold giver values more strongly than, than matcher or taker values. And yet, you know, you come into the workplace and you think it's, it's a major sort of risk factor to, you know, to be other oriented. And so you pull back a little bit, right. And you take or match, even though that might not be your preferred style. So, you know, the question of, well, how can it be more powerful and less dangerous? When I study the givers at the top versus the givers at the bottom, there are a couple of consistent patterns that come out and they all revolve around the idea that, you know, if you end up putting other people's interests first and have no concern for your own, that's a recipe for, for disaster. So it's, it's pretty, pretty bad to say, look, I'm going to be a, a pure altruist because that's a great way to self-sacrifice. Hmm. And the successful givers, what they do is they're much more thoughtful about who, when, and how they help. And we can dig into that a little bit if, if there's interest. Well, you know, it's funny. John, I know yeah, John has I, something. On I that. wanted to ask you, and I was going to make an assumption in guessing that you're a giver. And if so... I wanted to know how you balance your time because I assume that it's it's very time consuming to be a giver, to mentor people or to help people out. How do you go throughout your day with striking that right balance? Well, first we need to uh, we need to step back and say, am I a giver? Well, that's yeah, that's why I was saying I was going to make the assumption. So I'm just it, hoping you are. It would be fascinating if a huge taker wrote this book about yes. how givers are, are, can be stars in organizations, but. You know, I, I, fu fundamentally, I don't think it's my place to judge whether I'm a giver or not. You know, I think that ultimately is a judgment that's in the eye of the beholder. I can tell you that giver values are important to me, and I aspire to live by these principles. But whether I succeed or not, you know, it's really the you know judgment to be made by my family, my colleagues, my students, and other people I interact with. But you know, I think w what I've tried to do as I've I've worked to incorporate more giver values into my my work life is, you know, really try to practice a little bit of, of what I've been studying. So, you know, the, the first thing is on the who side, I think successful givers have really clear priorities. You know, you can't help everybody and you can't be equally generous toward everybody in your network and outside. So for me, what I've gotten really clear about is family first, student second, colleagues third, and everybody else fourth. And, you know, if if a request comes in, the first thing I do is say, okay, will this compromise my ability to contribute to my family, to my students, to my colleagues in that order? And then if the answer is no, 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 then I'll consider it. 
And then the next order question is, can I contribute uniquely here? Or is there someone I know who's better suited actually to help with this particular request? And I try to make the introduction, you know, where I know somebody who's better at helping in that particular way than I am. And then, you know, the other piece of this for me is my wife has been sort of encouraging me for years to uh, do a little bit more of what I ended up calling sincerity screening in the book, which is to say, look, you know, you don't want to invest equally in all kinds of people. If you help takers, that's a great way to get exploited and stabbed in the back. And, you know, she's really encouraged me to say, look, you know, I'm going to help the givers who are the most motivated to pay it forward and the matchers who are, you know, inclined to pay it back. And that actually creates a greater return on investment in giving because you're able to, to help more people if you don't help people who take advantage of you. I find that it's interesting. Use givers and takers, right? They're two opposite ends of the spectrum. And then the middle one, matchers, where it's more of the idea of connecting people as opposed to just being in the middle ground. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. You know, it's, it's interesting, actually, because when you look at the, the idea of being a matcher, you know, fundamentally, matchers believe in a just world. And they, you know, they think that what goes around ought to come around. And matchers are actually the engine that causes more often than not takers to fail and givers to succeed. Because a matcher, matchers hate takers much more than givers do. You know, a lot of givers will see a taker and, you know, say, well, gee, you know, I, I feel sorry for this person. Or, you know, they, they obviously have not fully recognized that the, there are ways that you can succeed that don't necessarily mean stepping on other people. You know, whereas matchers look at this and say, you know, wait a minute, a successful taker is a violation of, you know, of a just world. And so they're really motivated to, you know, to actually engage in reputational gossip <laughs> and, and make sure that, you know, people are, are forewarned about the takers around them. And matchers also can't stand to see givers acting generously and not get rewarded for it. And so they tend to really go out of their way to make sure that those who have helped them really benefit from their generosity. So I think I think matchers are, are really critical to uh, to protecting givers from takers. So in the end, it's really takers are the only ones that are evil, <laughs> right? Evil is a strong statement. You know, I, I think there is that group of takers who are psychopaths or sociopaths. Right. But two other kinds of takers for me are more common. You know, one, one is a narcissist, you know, somebody with a, an inflated but fragile ego who feels like you have to be better than others in order to, you know, to achieve anything. And then, you know, the other kind is, is somebody who used to be a, a giver or a matcher, but got burned one too many times and sort of learned the hard way. You know, it, it can be risky to, to put yourself out there for others and, you know, a lot of the world is a dog-eat-dog -dog competitive place, and if I don't put myself first, no one else will. The scary part is what your research found is, as a giver, there is part of that that's true, right? If you give too much, you can end up at the bottom. And so I feel like some people might say, well, better to then not be a giver. At least I won't be at the very bottom. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's a reasonable conclusion if, if your aim is to fall in the middle. And, you know, I think that most of the people that we interact with are really passionate about achieving success. And not only that, you know, I think part of the story is, you know, givers, when they succeed, often rise higher than takers and, or matchers. You know, the, the venture capitalist Randy Commissar had a really interesting way to put this. He said, at the end of the day, what he realized over the course of his career was it's easier to win if other people want you to win. Right. So when, when takers succeed, other people are gunning for them. When givers succeed, other people are rooting for them. 
And, you know, I think that that, that really speaks to, to two things that happen to givers when they succeed that, that are really exciting. One is, you know, this, this really strong relationship and reputation effect, you know, that the givers are respected and valued and appreciated. The other is, though, that it's just a, a very powerful source of meaning that when you look at data on what gives people a sense of purpose at work and in life, the experience of making a difference and helping others is, is one of the biggest drivers. And so, you know, if, if you want to feel like your work matters and, you know, you contribute something that has lasting significance, then, you know, giving is, is a different and maybe more rewarding path to success. And that's a really, I think, a good way of, of putting it, especially if you want to make it to the top, you have to be able or willing to take that risk, put yourself out there, do more for others and hope that they recognize you for it. Yeah, I think that's a very nice way to, to sum it up. And it shouldn't have taken me 300 pages to say that, but that's what I meant. <laughs> yeah, well, you did it with a lot, like I said, more eloquence and research. But one of the things I was wondering is what at that point differentiates a successful giver, one that I guess I don't want to say does it the right way, but gets a little in return versus a matcher? Well, I think that, you know, matchers tend to make a couple of mistakes. And it's easiest to see this through the network lens that I wrote about a little bit in chapter two of Give and Take. So three mistakes sort of come out when you look at what matchers do as they interact with other people in their networks. The first one is, is that, you know, they, they tend to make sure in every exchange that the score is even, right? So they don't want to leave any credits unused or, you know, any debts. And what that does is it creates a little bit of a transactional feeling. Like, you know, I didn't really care about you. I was just, you know, sort of trying to trade favors. And, you know, what givers do by contrast is, you know, they give without keeping track of what they're owed or what they've contributed. They, they really just pay more attention to what other people need. And that sends a much stronger feeling that this is a meaningful investment in our relationship. So the goodwill, you know, the strength of connection is, is quite different there. Second mistake that the matchers tend to make is they, you know, they have a habit of more or less you know, sort of only helping the people that they expect to be able to get something in return from, because that's the whole point of being a matcher, right? Is, is to say, well, you know, I'm going to help the people who can reciprocate evenly and that way, you know, I can, I can give to get, but, you know, as, as several of the stories in the book illustrate, and, you know, as a lot of data suggests, you can't always predict who can help you. And matchers really tend to limit their networks to a much narrower sphere of interactions, as, as Reid Hoffman, the LinkedIn founder, put it, than, than givers do, right? Givers extend their help more broadly, more generously, and they end up with a, a more diverse set of ties, some of whom turn out to be amazingly helpful. So I think there's, there's some good karma there. And then, you know, the, the third factor is, is matchers are just a little bit more cautious. So, you know, it is, it is a play-it-safe strategy, and, you know, matchers tend to do much more cost-benefit calculation and I think that sometimes that just takes them out of the moment of interacting and really building a sort of a, a spontaneous connection. As you're going through it, I know all our listeners are thinking this because it's pounding into my mind. I'm like, okay, wait, what am I? <laughs> right. And then if I am something, cause you'll say something about a giver, I'll be like, oh, I'm that. And then a matcher. Oh, I'm that. Is it hardwired? Is it something we make on a decision to decision basis? I mean, how does it work? Yeah, I actually think it's both, but it's, it's probably huh. best situated right in between. You know, so for, for me, you know, your style of, of give and take is, is basically a combination of your mindset in an interaction and then the behaviors that you engage in in an interaction. 
And that gets aggregated across lots of different interactions and situations and moments. So, you know, what we could do is if we wanted to follow, you know, Chris or John, if we wanted to really know your style, what we would do is we would, you know, observe you over the course of, of a number of days, interact with lots of different people in different contexts. And then we would look at how do you treat most of the people most of the time? And, you know, that's where I find at work, most of us have a default, but we all also have the capability to switch between these styles, right? We have moments of taking, like when we're trying to negotiate a, a raise, we have moments of giving when we're mentoring usually, but, you know, other moments of matching. And, you know, I, I do think that everybody has a mix in their, you know, if you were to follow them long enough, but the, the big question is, you know, what is your instinct? What's your default? And then, you know, what kind of impression do, do you create in the eyes and minds of the people that you interact with? What givers have you come across that you're just really impressed with? They've made it. It's a, it's a good story, kind of, you know, one for the nice guy type thing. Well, there, there are a lot of them. And one of the challenges with writing the book was trying to figure out who to feature and, and who not to cover. Yeah. I could go on all day about some of the people who are in the book and, you know, I think they're, they're really outstanding, but maybe this is a neat opportunity to talk about a couple of people who are not in the book. Uh, so one who I've been really impressed by recently is Robin Scott. She's an entrepreneur in London who started uh, One Leap as one of her ventures and another is Intros. And I think Intros is, is one of the coolest concepts I've come across in a long time. The, the basic idea is, you know, she was uh, she was thinking a little bit about the people in her life and, and who had helped her out. And she realized there were some people who had opened extraordinary doors for her. And, you know, then the, the connection sort of spiraled and, you know, she followed through and, and never went back to report on how useful it was. And she basically took a day around the holiday season and reached out to all the people who had made introductions for her. And updated them on the good that they had done and, and all the amazing things that were happening as a result. And, you know, they, they were really energized by it. So was she. And she realized what we needed was a tool to track the connections we make because connecting people is one of the, the easiest and most powerful ways of being a giver. So, you know, the startup intros basically allows you to BCC an email address anytime you send a note introducing two people. And then it will automatically set up a tracking system where the person can report back with feedback and you can see the real impact of your introductions. That's really cool. It's such a cool idea. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure, the, I'm the sure other, John doesn't. I'm, I'm surprised John doesn't know about it yet. <laughs> well, soon enough. You know, I think that, that part of what I really liked about it was that it, in and of itself, it allows you to recognize other people who are giving. You know, so if you're a recipient of an intro, one of the best ways you can be a giver is to show that person how the connection they made for you made a difference. And you know, I think we're, we're all so busy with, with many tasks and relationships that it's hard to keep track of these. And I thought intros was a terrific idea for, for capturing that and very much from the mind and heart of a giver. A lot of our listeners, including myself, are at companies where we are put on a lot of different teams. I'm on a consulting team. And I was just thinking, how can I, I guess, identify and then not really take advantage, but you know, if I have takers on my team, what's the best way to work with those folks? And then if I have matchers, I mean, is there any advice that you can give to, to working with the different groups of people? Yeah. I, you know, I think the, the biggest part of that is definitely the question of how do I work with a taker, Right. which comes up very often. And I think there, there's basically a series of choices that you have to make. You know, the, the first one is to say, 
how much do I think this person is a taker across different relationships and roles in their life versus are they just in a taking mode in this particular setting? You know, and it, the more it's the latter, the easier it is to turn their stripes and to think about, okay, you know, I've seen them giving or matching in, in other situations and how can I, you know, figure out what are the triggers and, and draw them more in that direction. You know, if, if they're in the camp of, of basically seeming to be a taker with most of the people they interact with, you know, I think one option is to give them some really frank feedback. You know, if their peers are subordinates, this is easier than if they're superiors. Hmm. Um, you know, but I, I've, I've worked with some people who have said, look, the best thing I ever did was to sit down with someone and say, look, either by your behavior or by reputation, I perceived you as only out for yourself. And, you know, I don't tend to work well with people who operate that way. So it would be really great if we can find a, a more productive way to collaborate. I, I couldn't imagine sitting down with somebody and being fired. Like, yeah, and just saying, <laughs> uh, yeah, I've worked with you and you're a taker. Yeah, you know, we, we do want to create a takers anonymous group <laughs> where, you know, if, if you get nominated enough times by your colleagues, then you get sent for, uh, for a little bit of reform. But no, I mean, I, I do think that as, you know, as Doug Stone and Sheila Heen and, and Bruce Patton wrote in their wonderful book, Difficult Conversations, you know, most of us are really reluctant to have these chats, but sometimes they can be quite helpful, especially if you can get down to the behavior and say, look, here's the action you engaged in that led me to think that you didn't care that much about my interests or the group. Hmm. And, you know, I, I think you'll have a better experience working with me if I don't see you that way. So please help change my mind. But there, there are lots of other approaches. And, you know, I think one of them is make sure that you're more of a matcher when you deal with takers, if you have a habit of giving elsewhere. Because, you know, you, you don't want to be as generous with somebody who's just going to take, take, take from you as you do you know, with people who are motivated to pay it back and or pay it forward. That's a good point. And it makes me wonder, have you worked with anybody or heard of anybody that after learning about you, after somebody talked to them going, oh, man, I'm a taker. I need to change this in order to just not even to succeed, but to to be a good person almost. <laughs> yeah, since April, I've been getting about three of those emails a week, yeah. <laughs> you know, from people saying, you know, I, I read your book or I came across your work and I realized very rarely do they say I am a taker. You know, what, what they more often say is I realized I used to be a taker and uh, you know, I'm in yeah. the process of converting or I, I realized, you know, I was approaching this job more like a taker or, you know, I was I was thinking about networking, you know, more in a taker mindset. And I realized there's another way. You know, and I, I think that, frankly, sometimes one of, the, one of the things you can do, which is very much what I, what I tried to do in the book, is say, look, you know, takers are motivated by self-interest. And it's possible to elicit really strong loyalty from a taker by aligning your interests with the taker's interests. Right? You have to be careful when, when those, those interests diverge. But if you can figure out what that, what's important to that person and, you know, make the behavior you want to see align with that, then, you know, a lot of times takers will blur the boundary between self-concern and other concern and feel like, well, you know, if our interests are the same, then, you know, helping you is helping me. So, you know, for me, that, that was part of why, uh, why I kind of led off the book by saying, look, you know, if success is what you're really after as a taker, you might find out that there's another way to get it that's more sustainable. <laughs> That is some shady stuff. Now it's like playing on takers to get the man. I there's too much there's too much psychological warfare going on in all this. 
It does worry me a little bit that, you know, maybe what we're doing is just arming takers to be better fakers. <laughs> that's, I like that, actually. That's that a, could be, yeah, the second book, like, How to Disarm Fakers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that would be a lot of fun. You know, one thing that I, I heard you mention in a talk elsewhere is the five-minute favor. And I think that's a really cool, quick anecdote that people can learn to become better givers, if you will. And I was hoping you could kind of go into that a little bit. Yeah, this is one of my favorite ideas that I learned about while doing give and take research. This comes from Adam Rifkin, who's a a very successful Silicon Valley entrepreneur who started three companies and got 50 million US dollars of funding for his first and managed to retire in his 30s. And uh, was named, he's back out of retirement now, of course, but (laughs) he he was named Fortune's Best Networker because he has an extraordinary set of connections. And he he built them all by being a giver. And I I was just, you know, incredibly captivated by his story. So I I did what's only natural in this connected world we live in. I I stalked him. You LinkedIn (laughs) request. Oh, yeah. LinkedIn, Google, Facebook. I was everywhere. And soon I was following him around Northern California, which was a total blast. But, you know, one of the things that Adam taught me is he said, look, a lot of, you know, basically a lot of people think that to be a giver, you have to be Mother Teresa or Gandhi. But, you know, that's, that's really not sustainable for most of us mere mortals. And Adam said, what you can do if you want to be more successful and more generous and have more meaning and happiness in your life too, is you can just do more five-minute favors every week, which are just ways of adding high value to other people's lives at a low personal cost. You know, we we talked about being a connector earlier. Making introductions is one of the most powerful five-minute favors you could think of. And, you know, imagine that you just took one day every week and said, I'm going to make a few more introductions that day than I normally do. And just think about two people who could benefit from knowing each other. Or, you know, another favorite example of a five-minute favor from Adam is to go out of your way to recognize somebody who has been successfully generous. You know, whether it's a a quick Twitter shout-out or a Facebook post or a letter to that person's boss, you know, just making sure that somebody who contributes in a generous way gets recognized for it. You know, I think there are lots of other ways to do five-minute favors, but it's, I think, the most practical way you can think about incorporating low-risk giving into your life. It's a great message. It's a great thing for people to just absorb. We interviewed somebody a few weeks ago who was talking about successful marketing is kind of about putting things out there that people can use first and foremost. And I think it all wraps into one sphere, which is just help others. And what is that quote? It's uh, rising tides raise all ships or something. Did I get that right? Yeah. The rising tide lifts all boats. (laughs) There you go. I mean, that's pretty close. But I, I'll take it. Know, Although, you know, it's funny because when, when takers succeed, their rising tide sinks all the other boats. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Their rising tide. Well, you know, the one last question I want to ask you, I know we, we've had time, but you are, especially within the profession of being a, a professor and everything, you're wildly successful, youngest tenured professor, highest rated professor at Wharton School, which is probably one of the top in the country, 40 under 40 best professors. How did you get to that level? And do you think it had anything to do with this give and take mentality? Or was it more just hard work and being really passionate about it? Well, you're overly kind in your praise. (laughs) You know, I think that that whatever success I've had in in my field to date, yeah, I I think hard work and passion is is definitely part of it. I think that I've also just been incredibly lucky. I, I stumbled into some some terrific mentoring relationships with Givers who really changed the way that I saw the world and inspired me to try to pay it forward. 
Um, Brian Little in particular was uh, my mentor as an undergraduate and you know, the, the most passionate teacher and encyclopedic researcher when it comes to knowledge and expertise that, I, that I've ever seen. And, you know, just always going out of his way to help other people. And, uh, you know, I, I've tried to follow that model as much as I can. You know, I don't know. It's hard to know, right? Like there are times, there are days where you feel like, you know, setting aside time to be helpful to other people was the best and most worthwhile thing you did. You know, there are other days when I walk away and I'm like, you know, I, I tried to help a few people today and I don't feel like I added anything useful. So, you know, but I, I do think it, it's it's added up. The, the time that I spent trying to give has, you know, really made me feel that my job, both the research and teaching parts are extremely meaningful and it gives me a lot of energy to, to work harder and longer. So I think, uh, I guess it's it's been a piece of it. And that's fantastic stuff. I mean, you wrote the book on it, and even some days you wonder, did I do my best to be a giver, or did I take a little too much? So hopefully that gives a little security to everyone out there who's questioning themselves right now. But it does at least make you think about it next time, where your motivations are, I guess, hopefully. Yeah, I think so. And, you know, I think maybe saying, am I a giver, is, is the wrong question to ask. You know, I, I would much rather people say, okay, what are the forms of giving that I enjoy and that I excel at? And, you know, how can I build those into more five-minute favors so that, you know, giving is, uh, is energizing as opposed to exhausting and it actually leverages my distinctive expertise? Right. That's really awesome stuff. And again, the book, Give and Take, A Revolutionary Approach to Success, it's fantastic. You do a great job at, you know, backing up everything you have to say with some research, which is something that I personally really enjoy. Where else can our listeners go to kind of learn about where, what you're writing or what you're discovering, what you're researching, things like that? Well, again, very kind of you to ask. The cleverly named website, get this, is www.giveandtake.com. Look at that. Who, who would have thought? <laughs> but uh, you, you can find all the articles that I've written for popular audiences there and some videos. And my favorite part is, is the assessments where you can fill out a little survey to find out whether you think most often like a giver, taker, or matcher and try this one at your own risk. You can invite other people to rate you anonymously and the site will aggregate the feedback and tell you how other people actually see you. That is awesome. Yeah, we're definitely jumping on there right yes, after this. That is happening. I did not know that was there. Now you just have to invite all the people who already think you're givers exactly, to rate you. Exactly. I'm going to go to all my best friends. Skew the results just a little bit, yeah. <laughs> well, Adam, again, thank you so much. Great stuff. I really appreciate you being on the show. And uh, we look forward to the next book you come out that's going to be Takers, Not Fakers, right? <laughs> well, I, I think you guys should actually write that one. So I'll, <laughs> you I'll got it. Smart People Podcast. <laughs> there <Thanks>. we go. <laughs> I love it. Thanks again. Have a great night. I'm really appreciate it. You too, Chris and John. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Adam Grant. You can find all things Smart People Podcast at smartpeoplepodcast.com. We're on iTunes, in the Google Play Store. We are everywhere. Is it weird? I literally don't know what Google Play is. No, that's fine. You don't have Android. I don't expect you to know. But there are people out there. Shout out to all our Android listeners. Sure, yeah, definitely. Yeah, head on over. I don't know if you're aware, but we write blog posts about 
the guests we have on. Sometimes it's clever, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. We have some other cool stuff there and you can click on our Amazon banner, stuff like that. Yeah, and we try to link to sites that they have and Twitter accounts, any of that kind of cool stuff, that's usually there. And if it's not, we'll get better at doing that, don't worry. So we're trying to be givers here. We're trying to just give away this awesome stuff and we hope, we truly hope you enjoy it. Make sure to tune in next week, another great episode. Talk to you soon.